Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us, letting us be part of your day. As always, we appreciate it. Hope you're having a good day, a safe day. Here's what's going on. Negotiations continue in Washington, D.C. as they try to put together a compromised coronavirus assistance uh, package. We'll be talking about that today. Also, Jaime Castaneda with the uh, U.S. Dairy Export Council will join us in the National Milk Producers Federation. He's going to talk about the effort to protect common food names. You wouldn't think you would need to have to protect common food names, but uh, certainly a lot's at stake here. We'll give you an update on that. Also, Colin Woodall, CEO of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, will be joining us. They held their summer meeting last week, actually had a meeting in person with uh, folks from around the country. We'll talk about that and what they decided and kind of look ahead to the coming year and talk some issues like cattle markets with Colin Woodall. And we have the uh, latest numbers from the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer will be joining us with those results a little bit later. But let's kick things off with DTN reporter Todd Neely. Todd, good to talk with you. And we have some um, action, I guess we could say, or at least another step in this review of the small uh, refinery exemptions, the uh, so-called gap years, a retroactive one. So where does that stand now? Yeah, Mike, uh, thanks for having me on today. You know, um, Senator Grassley this morning in a press call with Ag Reporter said that uh, the 57 gap year waivers uh, that the EPA is uh, still considering uh, the review of it by the Department of Energy has been completed and it's been sent back over to the EPA. And so uh, the EPA has about 90 days to kind of make a decision on those. And so uh, if you look at the calendar, 90 days from now would put us up to about the election. So uh, it'll be interesting to see whether that actually occurs, but at least uh, the ball does seem to be rolling. I don't know. Sending things to EPA seems to be like <laughs> sending them somewhere where they just kind of disappear for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think this this issue has been ongoing for so long that I think after a while you tend to lose track of it. But, um, you know, just the idea that they have a 90-day window and it takes us up right up to Election Day uh, would lead you to believe that there won't be a decision. But then again, um, you know, it's going to depend a lot on uh, – you know, whether those waivers are legitimate, you know, depends on what DOE said about them. And um, I guess we just kind of wait and see what happens. All right. Let's also uh, get the latest uh, about the possibility of an investigation of Tyson. What do you know there? Uh, Yeah, you know, we had a couple of worker interest groups last week file a complaint with the Federal Trade Commission. And one of the things that come up, um, you know, throughout the entire COVID thing and, and, uh, you know, for years, Tyson has had quite a quite a record of uh, plant accidents, uh, chemical spills, <clears throat> you name it. And so um, we've seen a couple of groups come forward, and um, they're asking the FTC to investigate and to, to see whether, um, you know, Tyson has basically been misleading the public by saying that they have safe work environments, uh, you know, and all the claims that the company makes on its website about its production. Um you know, lately, though, we've seen a lot of things going on with Tyson uh, in the courts. And I think, uh, you know, there seems to be kind of an underpinning going on right now uh, about whether <clears throat> whether Tyson is, is uh, on the up and up with a, with a lot of the things that have been happening. And so 
Um, we'll see where that goes too. But I think, um, you know, it does raise the specter that uh, maybe people nowadays, as a result of this whole COVID thing and, and all the disruptions we saw in the meatpacking industry, um, you know, perhaps there's going to be a little bit more attention paid um, paid to this particular industry. Meanwhile, we continue to watch what happens in Congress uh, as they try to work out a COVID assistance package, another one. And uh, it seems yeah. like they're still a long ways apart. Yeah, you know, Mike, I think the most interesting aspect of this is, though, uh, there, there seems to be quite a bit of agreement on, you know, the pool of money that we've heard about, the $20 billion that USDA would have to spend uh, to help ag producers. Um, it seems things have kind of gotten tied up now. Uh, when it comes to, to food stamps and that and that sort of thing, the supplemental nutritional assistance benefits. Um, and so I think, you know, this is really nothing new. It seems like any time we talk about agriculture in Congress and there's something to do with relief, uh, you know, the whole SNAP program tends to, to be front and center, and this is no different. Yeah, that was the hang-up during the Farm Bill debate. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, I think it's one of these debates that's probably never going to cease. I mean, I think... You know, it's always been a political hotspot, you know, whether uh, SNAP belongs in the farm bill or whatever the case may be. And so uh, I think it's one of these situations that we're just perpetually going to see this issue come up. Also, uh, in this year of elections, we're looking at that uh, primary race in Kansas as uh, the uh, battle is on to see who takes the spot held by Pat Roberts, who's retiring. Yeah, you know, Mike, it's, it's sort of interesting because, uh, you know, we have a number of Republicans running. Obviously, there are four in this in this race. Uh, President Trump has declined to come out and endorse any of the candidates. Uh, but we've seen all kinds of interesting ads appearing in Kansas. You know, we've seen uh, a Democratic uh, organization involved in this race, too, attempting to kind of sway the voters. And I think uh, it's really going to be interesting to see because this seat's been held by Pat Roberts for a very long time. And, uh, you know, he's a very strong, influential uh, member of Congress when it comes to agriculture. And so what happens in Kansas is definitely uh, going to affect the industry uh, for years to come. Yeah, it's uh, certainly an election year unlike a lot of others uh, because of all that's going on <laughs> with COVID and questions about voting and balloting and things like that. So there's just so much yeah. uh, swirling around right now. Uh, meanwhile, though, the weather has taken this unexpected turn for cooler. And uh, for many areas, it's a nice uh, bit of relief and crops are responding and doing well. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. When you look, <clears throat> when you look at the latest crop reports, both corn and soybeans are looking really good. Um, you know, a lot of them are ahead of schedule. Uh, the one exception is in Iowa, where they're struggling a little bit with, with some drought conditions. But, uh, yeah, you know, in any other year uh, involving the coverage of agriculture like we do, uh, this would be quite a year uh, setting up. And I think, um, you know, that's kind of a silver lining, I guess, we can look toward in, in all the confusion ongoing. But it also places more importance on exports and trade, and that's why everybody Absolutely. continues to watch China. Yeah, yeah, and I think... Uh, you know, we're still waiting to see what China's going to do. You know, they've been buying some more products, but uh, they've got quite a long ways to go to, to meet the demands of, of the agreement. So it's uh, got a long haul on that. Yeah, they've bought a lot, but we've got a lot more to sell. That's for sure. All right, right. Todd, good to talk with you. Thanks a lot. We'll check in again next week. All right. Thank you, Mike. All right. DTN reporter Todd Neely. 
Well, up next, there is an ongoing battle. This is not new, but it's been going on uh, for quite some time and uh, kind of heating up, and that is the fight to protect common food names. A lot of the names for different food products, like cheeses, that uh, you would think, you know, this who owns the rights to those? Well, <laughs> that's a battle going on right now, and how that impacts industries like the dairy industry. We're going to get into that coming up next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. A topic we have discussed before, but I think needs to be brought up again and explained again because it's just hard for a lot of us to, uh, I think, wrap our minds around this, that common food names, names of uh, different products, say like a ch- like cheeses, uh, names we've known all of our lives, uh, you don't think of somebody owning those names or being able to control those names, but that is indeed a battle that is going on. And joining us now is Jaime Castaneda, Executive Director of the Coalition for Common Food Names. Jaime, thanks for joining us again. Uh, I, I, I still think this is a, a battle that a lot of people don't even understand why it's going on. Thank you, Mike, and thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to be with you and, and your audience Uh yeah, just just think about it. Uh, how would you feel if one day the European uh, Union comes and says, Mike, you cannot use Mike ever again? Because guess what? Mike comes from Michael, and Michael is originated from Europe. Uh, therefore, we're going to take away, and you're going to have to be named something different. So how would we actually recognize you? How would we actually try to communicate with you? We have always known you as Mike. So that's a, a, a simple way of, of putting it, but very clear. Which is what's going on with a number of food products. Uh, I used the example of cheeses. That's a key one for the dairy industry, but there are others. So bring us up to date on where we're at with this. Absolutely. So the issue is that the ability of all of us to be able to continue to use all these names that you mentioned uh, that have been on the public domain, like Parmesan, Asiago, Salami, and many others, including Weinstein. Why is it important? Because just think about it, as we were just talking about uh, your name. Uh, think about it, whether you can actually go into a grocery store and try to buy Parmesan or Feta and the only product that you can find with that name is a Italian or a Greek product. And the everything else is going to be called grated cheese or salty cheese. You're therefore not going to be buying those, those products. We did a study in also the Grocery Manufacturers of America of changing uh, the brand names, changing the names of this product would cost billions of dollars, not only to dairy farmers, but manufacturers. So at the end of the day, what we are doing is educating the administration and members of Congress. Congress just uh, sent a letter with 61 senators. Not every day you get 61 senators to agree on basically anything, but they sent a letter 
to Ambassador Lighthizer with the United States Trade Representative asking them that they need to match the same uh, efforts that the European Union uh, are doing with respect to their geographical indicators to defend uh, this common name. So this is an important issue in trade deals, right? Absolutely. Uh, and the next one, that, that, that we are at crossroads with the U.K. negotiations. As you know, we are negotiating a free trade agreement with the United Kingdom, and the United Kingdom is negotiating an agreement with European, the European Union, since now they left uh, that group. Uh, this is why if we don't get to have um, all the opportunities to sell all our cheeses into the UK, we will lose the opportunity to uh, have the type of market access that we would like to see and that we benefit manufacturers and dairy farmers. We're talking with Jaime Castaneda, Executive Director of the Coalition for Common Food Names. So we're talking about uh, billions of dollars at stake here, right? Absolutely. Uh, there has been more than one study in which we're talking about. Think that the, we have actually become much more sophisticated when it comes to producing uh, different food products. And one of the items that actually are the fastest growing uh, section of, for instance, cheese side is all these specialty cheeses. Uh, this is why the future, not only from a domestic side, but from the export uh, opportunities, are for expanding our uh, sales on, on this type of product. And this is why we need to actually ensure that the U.S. government defends uh, the use of common food uh, names and wine terms. You know, people probably say, well, can they really enforce it? I mean, can they keep us from using uh, Parmesan? Well, if you're in business and it's, you know, if you're running legal risk by using a name like that, uh, that would impact how you do your business, right? Yeah, absolutely. If the Italians would actually uh, succeed, they have tried. Not only uh, the, the, the folks with uh, the Parmesan, which is called in Italy Parmigiano Reggiano, but also the Asago folks or Gorgonzola. Today, the Consortium for Common Food Names is fighting a battle uh, in court to defend the name Gruyere, which the Swiss and the French wants to take away. Hmm. So, <laughs> I keep thinking of the old uh, the old saying, "What's in a name?" Well, a lot's in a name. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's how I started with a lot is in the name because unlike uh, other uh, types of products, uh, when you go to the store, you go to the store to try to buy, again, uh, a, a feta product, a Parmesan. I don't know if, I, I, if you, Mike, have ever seen the movie Judgment of Paris or knew about that uh, term. If not, I encourage your your audience to, to watch it. It's when the United States won for the first time uh, uh, over all the French wines uh, many, many years ago. Well, we are in the same situation here with the cheese side. Uh, not 
too long ago, the United States, a Parmesan cheese from Wisconsin, won the best award on all Parmesans in the world, beating all the Italians, beating everyone. Uh, and just last year, we won the number one uh, cheese award uh, in the International World Contest in Italy in, for a cheese uh, from Oregon. You may recall that. So mm -hmm. we, the Europeans, are very concerned, and this is one of the reasons that they're trying to take away the opportunity for us to compete with them um, and at the same level with the same name. They don't want to do that. So you mentioned that 61 senators have uh, sent a request to the Trade Representative's Office and USDA that the U.S. government uh, uh, enhance protection of common food names. Who makes the final decision on this? Where is that final decision made? Well, in negotiations, it is, uh, uh, it is, a, uh, it is a negotiation. It is basically a discussion, and at the end of the day, will be a, how forceful the United States government uh, ends up being with respect to, to this issue. I think that if we are uh, diligent on these negotiations, we will be able to uh, protect many of these common food names. The European Union, of course, they do that. In the United States, the last word is with the Patent Trade Office. Uh, the Europeans are trying to actually apply for these geographical indicators, and the Patent Trade Office has a process in which they have the final decision. In the case, for instance, as I was mentioning, Gruyere, um, there was a first instance in which they were trying to protect uh, a compound name that it is entails a num uh, not just the name Gruyere, but others, and the Swiss and the French, decided that actually the name Gruyere was also protected and began sending letters to grocery stores saying that they cannot have Gruyere produced in the United States anymore. So we challenged that. So at the end of the day, it's a little bit of everybody. During negotiations, it is actually the last words in the United States and how forceful they are. And there's a lot at stake, as we mentioned. Jaime, thank you for the update, and uh, we'll stay in touch on this as we continue to watch his progress. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you again. Thank you, thank you Mike. Take care. Jaime Castaneda, Executive Director of the Coalition for Common Food Name. Just amazing. Uh, so many issues today, and here's one you wouldn't even think it has to be an issue, but it is on who controls a name like Parmesan, for instance. All right, a lot of uh, issues and challenges for the cattle industry. They actually held a meeting last week at a time when not too many in-person meetings are being held, but they held one. We'll get an update and a review of that meeting from Colin Woodall, CEO of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. In this COVID era, era there are not many in-person events Certainly not many ag meetings going on in person these days. So many things being done virtually. But there was one held uh, 
last week, and that was the uh, summer meeting for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. The beef industry got together, and Colin Woodall, CEO of NCBA, is with us. Colin, thanks for being with us. How was that? Uh, how did that feel to have people actually face to face? Well, the overwhelming response that we received, people were thankful that we had this meeting and the opportunity to see old friends and talk through some issues, but it it came with a cost, and that cost was people having to wear masks. We had socially distanced rooms where every seat or table was six feet apart. We had caps on the number of people who could be in rooms. We had overflow rooms and simulcasts. So there was a, a lot uh, going on behind the scenes to make sure that we could pull this off. But overall, I think that uh, we had a very productive meeting. And again, the, the feedback that we have has been very productive. It was a hybrid meeting, so we had folks in person, but we also had the opportunity for those who just weren't comfortable traveling to be able to join through uh, webinars as well. So it, it allowed for everybody to be able to join in and, and have a say in NCBA's policy. Yeah, as you point out, it was a combination. They didn't have to be there. There, It was a hybrid meeting. So what were some of the takeaways from the business portion of the meeting? You know, it really focused on two major issues. Of course, the top issue is in regards to cattle markets and the discussion at our live cattle marketing meeting. Uh, that particular committee went for six hours. Uh, that is a, a record time for, for that particular committee, and the debate was on cash trade and whether or not NCBA wanted to support a mandate, a government mandate, determining how much cash trade should be out there. Uh, so after a, some uh, very, very good back and forth and a very robust debate, we ultimately left there with a policy that makes it very clear that we're going to continue to look at a mandate, but we are going to see if there is one more opportunity for us to find some voluntary ways to get the cash trade levels up. And if we are not successful in doing that, the policy is very clear that we will look at uh, what's next as far as a uh, mandate to, to force that. You know, this is something where all parties, uh, especially the packers, have to be willing to come together and put more cash trade on the table in order to have price discovery. Uh, if we can make that happen on our own, fantastic. If not, we have sent a very clear signal that next step would be consideration of a government mandate. Senator Grassley has said cattle producers should start massive uproar and uprising to get a hearing for mandatory LMR reauthorization, LMR being livestock mandatory reporting. Uh, what are your, what's your reaction to that call from Senator Grassley? So when you go back and you look at the history of mandatory price reporting, it's been in place about 20 years now. And every five years it does come up for reauthorization. And this is the year that it is up again. The current authorization expires on September uh, September 30th, so less than two months from now. Uh, having a hearing on mandatory price reporting, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but we have to make sure that Congress gets that reauthorized because if it expires and expires for an extended amount of time, we'll be back into a similar position we were in in 2005 when it expired. And once we finally got it reauthorized, we had to go through the entire rulemaking process again to get it put back in place. Uh, we need to make sure that this information continues to flow, and the only way to guarantee that is to have the reauthorization done before the uh, expiration date where does the you know we had those 
recommendations made by USDA from the investigation of cattle markets, but no findings of uh, price manipulation, although the investigation is ongoing. Uh, what's the reaction to that from your members? I think the reaction is uh, just just being assured that there is more to come. Because that's a key point is what you just mentioned, Mike, is that not only is USDA continuing their investigation to see if there's any violation of the Packers and Stockyards Act, but the Department of Justice is still actively investigating uh, Packers and looking at the industry as a whole. We know that as we speak, they are having conversations with uh, beef supply chain stakeholders across the country, still trying to put together uh, the the overall uh, situation in the, in the case to see if there is any need for prosecution. Uh, we don't have a timeline on that, but we've made it very clear to the administration that we need that done as quickly as possible because those results are going to have a big impact on a lot of the next steps that we take as an industry. And we can't wait six months to a year. You know, this report came out almost a year after the Holcomb fire uh, at that Tyson plant. And we just we just can't still be sitting here waiting for a report a year from now. We're talking with Colin Woodall, CEO of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Colin, we live in such polarized times, and this reminds me of the polarization that is on in, on the political uh, scene today. Uh, this particular issue when it comes to markets, and um, it seems like people, a lot of people have their minds made up already. So if, if a report comes out and doesn't, does not find any manipulation, by the Packers, then some people immediately say, uh, well, it's rigged or it's not really fair. They're not really trying to find anything. And on the other hand, uh, in your situation, you, your organization's been accused or criticized for being in bed with the uh, the Packers. So uh, if you don't come out and, and uh, are strongly critical of them, you're accused of, uh, you know, being on their side. So it, it's just hard to find uh, middle ground here and, and get, uh, and, and keep objectivity on this issue, it seems. You're you're right. I think you paint a very clear picture of of the accusations and some of people's hard feelings. And this is definitely not an easy issue. One thing I will tell you is that as we were participating in our meeting last week, there wasn't a single packer there. It was all producers who were making the decisions for NCBA's policy and determining what next steps we were going to take, which uh, we're proud of because it just continues to illustrate that, yes, while they are members of this association, as are other allied industry groups, when it comes down to the policymaking process, it's producers that carry the voice for NCBA, and the leaders come from those producer ranks. And you're right. Uh, there's a lot of people that uh, want to see uh, charges filed against Packers. Uh, we're going to have to wait to see what this investigation looks like, but if it comes out and there's nothing there, uh, I think we have to uh, look at all the facts that uh, the Department of Justice and the Packers and Stockyards uh, Division put out there and know that um, um, they they are, as far as we can tell, being as thorough as they possibly can, Mike, and that has been our ask, is do it quick, but also make sure that this is thorough, because everybody is expecting this to be a, a, a true third-party, uh, full investigation. What was the mood of uh, cattlemen around the country going through these difficult times? Uh, how would you describe it? You know, as I, as I look back at last week, I was surprised at how upbeat many of them were. 
uh, you know, every, everybody's got this market issue on their minds. Everybody's got COVID on their minds, the uncertainty on their minds. Uh, but really, uh, everybody came to town willing to work on these issues and to have constructive conversations. And, and yes, there was some some pretty uh, uh, robust debate in that live cattle marketing committee. But at the end of the day, everybody walked out of there shaking hands. And I think that uh, that says a lot about what we're able to do as an industry in times of stress. We can still have productive conversations and still get some resolutions made. What's the latest on the checkoff? So right now, the uh, groups that are petitioning USDA to hold a referendum are collecting their signatures. They have to get 88,269 signatures before the uh, next year, July 2nd of next year. So they have one year to, to get those signatures. At that point in time, then it will be up to USDA to verify the signatures to make sure that they are cattle producers and they are cattle producers that have paid the check off within that time frame. Uh, what we have discovered is that really it's up to the petitioners to decide how that petition is put together. So uh, they are using electronic form, and that is going to be perfectly acceptable. USDA's role really kicks in when it's time to verify and certify those signatures, and if indeed they reach that threshold of 88,269, then USDA will start planning for a referendum. And finally, your thoughts on CFAP assistance, about how it's going out and and being handled, and your thoughts on the next assistance package that they're working on now from a beef uh, industry perspective. And that was also one of the reasons why we wanted to have a meeting last week is just get everybody's pulse on what's going on. And one of the questions we asked is how are the CFAP program uh, payments going for uh, individuals? And a lot of producers had had no problem getting those. The process had been fairly easy, so we were happy to see that. But the question is, okay, what's next? Because we've had that April 15th date, an arbitrary date, where people that uh, marketed cattle after that did not get the same kind of payment. Uh, we do believe that the program that's being worked on now in uh, Congress will help address that. Not so sure it's going to move the date, but ideally it would uh, uh, plus up some of the second phase payments in order to, to make up that difference. So we, we do think there's going to be the opportunity to get more money in the hands of producers, but the timeline on that program is just uncertain right now. We had hoped that it would be done by the end of July. That did not happen. So right now we're just not sure exactly when we will know what's next. Yeah, we continue to wait and see what they work out. All right. Thanks a lot, uh, Colin. Good uh, good update, and I'm glad you were able to have your meeting, uh, as many as could make it, uh, in person, and uh, a lot of big issues ahead. So we'll stay in touch. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Colin Woodall, CEO of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. We have the latest numbers from the uh, Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. We'll get those for you next, right here on AOA. information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. We have the latest numbers, the July numbers in the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. And joining us now with those numbers is Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer. Michael, good to talk with you again. Looks like uh, the numbers were pretty much unchanged from a month earlier. 
Yes, the index was very similar to the index in June, and also it's quite similar to what the index was in March. Uh, but obviously, the index is still well below what it was in January and February uh, before the in impacts of, of COVID-19. Uh, interestingly, if you, if you divide the index into its components, uh, the index of current conditions is actually higher this month, but the index of, of future expectations slid a little bit. And so that's how we ended up with a, a similar index in July uh, that we had in, uh, to the one in June. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the barometer kind of gives us a look at what uh, farmers are feeling now, but also a look into how they how they you know perceive the the future and uh, how it impacts their choices and decisions. Let's take a look at one of those when it comes to uh, making farm machinery purchases. What are they saying? Yeah, the farm capital investment index is, is sixty, which is identical to what it was in June, but it is higher than what it was in March, uh, where it stood at fifty four. And, and again, an index under 100 means that there's there's less people going to buy machinery uh, than buy machinery. Uh, but still, the index is stronger than what it was uh, in April and May. What about compared to a year ago? Uh, you, you look at a year ago, the the and both the the ag, ag barometer index uh, and the machinery index, as well as many of the other the indices, were quite a bit higher. Uh, remember back to late, uh, last July, uh, we had a run up in corn prices. Uh, corn prices, at least the futures, got close to 450, uh, and so there was a lot more optimism in July 19 uh, compared to July 20. Now, what are their thoughts on uh, what they expect farmland prices to do? They're actually with a little bit more optimism short term, uh, very consistent with the uh, index of current conditions. 16% uh, uh, thought that land values were going to increase. Uh, in, in this in the next 12 months, uh, that's up from about 10. It's been running about 10 percent the last few months. So a little bit more, a little bit more optimism short term. Long term, uh, the about 50 percent uh, think that land value is going to increase in five years. That's down slightly. It's been running 55 to 60 percent, uh, thinking that land values were were going to increase in the next five years. And so it, it that's a consistent theme this month. Is a little bit more optimism short term, a little less optimism long term. And I guess the question on everyone's minds, no matter what business you're in or, you know, just we all think about this in one way or another, the impact of the coronavirus uh, on us, uh, not only now, but moving into the future. What did farmers say about what they think, it, how it's going to impact their farm? Well, if you look at the impact of COVID-19 on farm profitability, we've been asking this question the last several months. Approximately 60 percent are fairly or very worried about that. Uh, that's consistent with the uh, uh, the percentage of people that think farm financial performance is going to be worse uh, this year compared to last year. That's running right at about 45 percent, and so and so obviously uh, COVID-19 is, is having some lingering effects and, and is going to affect the affect the profitability quite a bit this year. You also ask a question because, and we talked about this some last month. Uh, so much of agriculture, the information sharing is done at in-person meetings, which are not being held now. So how are farmers uh, getting their information that they would have normally received by going to meetings? Yeah, we asked two or three questions related to this issue because we thought it was so interesting uh, last month. Uh, and and the, the results in terms of uh, uh, likelihood of attending in-person field days was very similar. In fact, I think it was identical. 53% uh, of those surveyed indicated that they're less likely to attend in-person field days. So what does that leave us? Uh, we asked them 
uh, about their uh, where they get uh, information uh, if they don't go to in-person educational events. And we had a long list of things uh, on, you know, that they could uh, do. Uh, one of them was view online seminars, webinars, YouTubes, uh, read farm magazines, listen to podcasts, uh, emails, direct emails, farm radio broadcasts, and websites. And it's fair to say that all of those were used by uh, at least a portion of the farms. And so it, it looks like farms get their information from a lot of different sources. Yeah, so like listening to us right now, right? Definitely. And, and, and we followed <laughs> that up by saying, uh, what is your main uh, source of educational information in light of the fact that you, can't, that you don't go to in-person educational events? I was a little surprised. Uh, to see that reading farm magazines was the highest, but uh, tied for second pretty much was uh, viewing online seminars and webinars, uh, farm radio, uh, and websites, and, and all of those had pretty healthy percentages uh, in terms of being their number one choice. And so uh, for someone like me that's in this educational business, uh, it means that we need to deliver the information in various sources, use various sources go. to deliver the information, because there really is a wide array uh, of different educational, uh, ed uh, the way that uh, people receive their educational information. It's not just one or two sources. We just need to get you on the radio more, it sounds like. All right. Uh, and finally, yeah. as we look about, what did they say about uh, the need for more assistance as we're waiting to see what Congress does with another aid package? That was that was been very consistent in the last two or three months when we asked that. Uh, two-thirds, approximately two-thirds, indicate that we're going to need further uh, economic assistance. And, and it's important to point out here that there's a wide array, wide array of enterprises represented, uh, and so that two-thirds is a pretty high number. I mean, the, approximately 50% are primarily corn and soybean producers, another, another 15 to 20% are wheat producers. But we've also got uh, cow-calf producers, dairy, uh, swine producers, and so that's a pretty high number. Uh, when you look at all the different enterprise, uh, enterprises represented, uh, some being impacted more than others uh, with COVID-19, i.e. corn uh, in particular, uh, two-thirds have indicated that uh, we're going to need additional economic assistance. Well, it's interesting to see what folks are saying during these, uh, these uh, challenging times of COVID-19. Always good to talk with you, Michael. We'll talk with you again next month with more results. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langmeyer with the results, uh, the latest results from the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. Well, that wraps it up for today. Thank you for joining us, and have a safe day, and hope you'll be back with us again tomorrow right here on AOA.